Father in heaven, we've been having a good time singing. We've been having a good time learning. Not all of us came and sang the last hour. But we have things that we want to say to you. We have things that we need to learn about. How to approach you, how to talk to you, how the people of the past have come to you and expressed themselves in ways that also resonate with us. We ask for wisdom. We ask for your grace. We ask for direction and understanding. And give ourselves to you for this hour of learning. In Jesus' name. You don't have to be a physicist to recognize the name Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein. You don't have to be an artist to have heard of Michelangelo or Claude Monet. You don't have to be a musician to know that at least there was such a fellow as Johann Sebastian Bach or Ludwig van Beethoven. Others besides historians can identify Abraham Lincoln or Charlemagne. Others besides medical personnel have heard of Florence Nightingale and Ben Carson. Others besides naturalists know about John James Audubon and John Muir. These names are simply part of the cultural landscape. They're part of being educated. They're part of knowing how life works. There are, I suggest, a number of names which are just as important and should be just as familiar to the Protestant Christian. And I'm not sure they are. It was originally my intention to focus this session on five names. That's why the title. Five names you deserve to know in Christian hymnody. And I had my list all picked out, and I was ready to go. And my conscience got at me because why should I give you the best-known names when some of the others are every bit as valid? And so I started trying to argue myself into another group of five, a different five, perhaps. And then... I couldn't stop. So forget the number, okay? We're just going to look at some of the wealth of Christian hymnody that is available to us. That happens for us in this book. This book. It's a marvelous book. It's got its drawbacks. It's a marvelous book. Anybody have a guess what hymn writer is represented by more hymns than anyone else in here? No, actually not. Good guess. Good guess. Let me double check, make sure I didn't. Nope, I didn't mess up. I'm right. Nope. Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts. Born in 1674, which was 11 years before Johann Sebastian Bach, for those of you that have a way to link things together. Born in 1674, Watts' father who was of Huguenot ancestry, twice during Isaac's infancy was imprisoned for his nonconformist beliefs. And people, I have to say right here, we too easily forget that our freedom to worship is not a given. It is not a commodity worldwide available. It has not been historically so, and we forget at our own risk that it is not always going to be here. My dear wife's nine times great grandfather was beaten in America for taking spiritual comfort to someone who did not belong to the state church. And that is a heritage which in its own odd way we treasure. Isaac himself was denied entrance to a university because he would not sign allegiance to the 39 articles of the Church of England. He trained therefore at a non-conformist academy and eventually became the ordained pastor of an independent congregation. 
Distressed by the poor quality of congregational singing in his home church, he began writing scriptural paraphrases in verse, and his local fellowship enjoyed them greatly. Standing only about five feet tall, Watts was spiritually and intellectually head and shoulders above most of his fellow believers. Frequently ill, when he had to miss preaching on a given Sunday, he would write a pastoral letter to the flock, which someone would read on his behalf. Hymns are certainly not his only contribution to the church. I own and have read a copy of his very meticulous and detailed study of prayer. A fascinating read. A little cloying at times, he gets so detailed, and yet he has wonderful things to say. The book is entitled, So Amazing, So Divine. I wonder where that came from. His textbook on logic, which I own a copy of but haven't read yet, was still in use at Oxford a hundred years after his death. That's interesting. Never in robust health, he spent the last 36 years, which was almost exactly half of his life, as a semi-invalid, supporting the gracious friends who housed and cared for him, writing hymns, devotional volumes, and other works of theology. The standard dictionary of hymns is John Julian's Dictionary of Hymnology, which was published in 1897. That's 150 years after Watts died. And at that time, Julian could write that the 454 hymns, 454 hymns which Isaac Watts wrote that Julian deals with in his hymnology are all in common use at the present time. 450 hymns still being used around the world 150 years later. Watts's philosophy can be well understood by the following quotations, of which there are three. Number one, I make no pretenses to the name of poet or polite writer. I am ambitious to be a servant to the churches and a helper to the joy of the meanest Christian. Meanest, of course, being the lowliest, the humblest, the most ordinary and uneducated. Number two, I would never indulge any bold metaphors or admit of hard words or tempt the ignorant worshiper to sing above his understanding. And number three, it was hard to sink every line to the level of a whole congregation and yet keep it above critical contempt. That's a fine line to walk, and he sensed it, and he felt it very, very keenly. Because of the reluctance of many believers to sing what were called hymns of human invention, if they weren't scripture, Watts early on recast almost the entire biblical psalter into metered verse. We sang Psalm 23 the last hour. That was not from his psalter, but from the Scottish psalter. Isaac Watts did the whole job himself, virtually. All 119 psalms, oh, never mind. It's a huge job. And some of his psalm settings are ones that we have in our book. Others had done the same project as early as the 1540s in French, which was the Genevan Psalter. The Scottish Psalter of 1564 that we uh, sang from last time. Watts went further, purposely reading the gospel into the psalms. Or as he said, the psalms Christianized, which is interesting. Alas, also, I'm afraid, reading some of Great Britain into them as well as a kind of an 18th century Jerusalem. Ah, well... Depending on what source you quote, Watts wrote between 450 and 600 hymns and psalm settings. I'm going to guess that most of you have sung When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I'll talk a little more about that one in a minute. Which is the best known of his output. I think you may be as familiar with I Sing the Mighty Power of God. We sang it this morning. O God, our help in ages past, which is Psalm 100 in his setting. And Marching to Zion, which is one our junior Sabbath school always enjoyed. So I want to introduce you to a different one. 
It should be number 94 in the hymnal. Nature with open volume stands. It's going to be down about the middle. If you just got a copy of the handout, leaf your way through, see if you can find it. Thirty-three years after the birth of Isaac Watts, just to kind of keep them in context, the 18th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. And incidentally, if you look back to the birth of the oldest child, it wasn't a whole lot more than 18 years before. They were a busy couple. The 18th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley was born. His name was Charles. While he and his older brother John would, it seem, have done sufficient service for the world by founding the Methodist Church, and we ought not forget that Ellen Harmon came straight into the Adventist movement from the Methodist Church in 1842, their gift qualified them for an even larger work, that of presenting and teaching church doctrine in the form of hymnody. That they believed intensely in what they were doing is apparent from the fact that in a period of 48 years, the brothers compiled and published 64 separate hymnal collections. That's one every nine months for half a century. And when you stop and think about what publishing involved when they lived, it was not word processing and running it off on the duplicator. Yes. In a preface to one of his later hymnals, John wrote, In what other publication of this kind do you have so distinct and full an account of scriptural Christianity? Such a declaration of the heights and depths of religion, speculative and practical, 
Such strong cautions against the most plausible errors, particularly those that are now most prevalent, and so clear directions for making your calling and election sure, for perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He was a preacher at heart. He was a pastor. From various experiences, John developed a profound respect for the beliefs and practices of the Moravian Brethren. I mentioned this morning how Charles and John were on their way to America on a ship which had a large company of Moravians traveling over here, half a hundred or so. And the ship ran into an incredible storm of such a nature that nobody was sure they would ever get to America, period. And the Wesley brothers who were coming as missionaries heard the Moravians singing in the midst of this storm, and they couldn't fathom how that could be. And John went and asked their leader, how can you sing when death is so close by? The Moravians said, we're not afraid to die. Your wives and your children, no, they're not afraid to die. And John Wesley stood there with his mouth hanging open, and he said, I want to know more. He got one of the leaders of the, of the uh, brethren to teach him German so that he could start translating some of their German hymns into English. They don't translate easily. We'll get down to that a little bit later because we do have something from the Moravian uh, tradition. Alongside his acknowledged skill as a preacher, John Wesley was a competent organizer and a businessman. He was the moving force behind producing all of these volumes of hymns. He was not the poet that his brother was, however. Charles was blessed with the poetic muse. It is generally acknowledged that Charles Wesley wrote something like 6,000 hymns, maybe 6,500, an astonishing number. Nobody pretends that they're all masterpieces. I don't suppose anybody could write that many and have them all be really marvelous. But there are as many as 500 that are still in common use today, which is, again, a remarkable tribute. 18 of them in the hymnal. By the way, there are 24 Isaac Watts. I didn't give you the number, did I? 24 by Isaac Watts, 18 by Charles Wesley. And they provide a strong foundation for Christian worship and personal growth, as you would expect from the founder of the Methodist movement. I'm going to hope that you are already familiar with love divine, all loves excelling, that maybe you know Christ the Lord is risen today, alleluia. I hope you know soldiers of Christ arise, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. These are all Charles Wesley. Maybe you don't know as well, but I can assure you the people in my class have come to love, haven't we, Matt? As vigorous and stimulating a tune as ever carried gospel truth. It's number 198 in our book, and we're going to sing it because it's a good old Methodist tune. And can it be?
do you want the gospel to be? But the next page, now that's another story. The next page is an interesting item. I have to give you a little personal history on this one. I had the great privilege of spending a week working with Alice Parker, a name that a lot of you don't know. She was the right-hand man to Robert Shaw, who was America's greatest choral conductor for a number of years. And Alice Parker did many, many arrangements, particularly of folk songs and folk hymns, which are ah, just beautifully crafted. So when I had a chance to take a workshop under her, I said, I'm going to go. I want to meet this lady. I'd seen her do hymn sings before, and she's so gracious, charming person. Uh, this was just after a new hymnal had come out, and she had been on the editorial staff. It was actually a Moravian hymnal that she helped them put together. And so she required us to buy that hymnal as part of our material. And she gave us a half a dozen numbers from the hymnal, said, go back to your rooms for the night and find one of these hymns that speaks to you and do something with it. Well, I looked through and I came across this one and I was simply knocked between the eyes. Come, O thou traveler unknown, whom still I hold, but cannot see. It's an interesting contradiction by itself. You ever stop to wonder where God was the night of Jacob's wrestling? He was in Jacob's arms. Wow. And we've got the time of Jacob's trouble coming, folks. Will he be in our arms? My company before is gone. Who's that? His whole family, everything. Split into two parts, sent across the river. 
he remained back by himself, and I am left alone with thee. With thee all night I mean to stay and wrestle till the break of day. I need not tell thee who I am. What was, who was Jacob? What's the name mean? Liar? Cheat? My name's Cheat. What's yours? I need not tell thee who I am. My misery and sin declare my name. Thyself hast called me by my name. Look on thy hands. Can you read it? Does he, does, does he have your name on his hands? Look on your hands and read it there. But who I ask thee, who art thou? Tell me thy name and tell me now. And it goes on for 14 stanzas. I'm not going to read it all to you. I hope you will take it home and be moved by it. But what's of interest to me is the little preface up there at the top. Charles Wesley once said he would gladly trade all the hymns he had written to have written when I survey the wondrous cross. And to his credit, Isaac Watts, who was, as we found, 33 years older, was quoted as saying that single poem, Wrestling Jacob, was worth all the verses he himself had ever written. Mutual admiration society. Shortly after Charles' death, his brother John tried to teach this hymn. But when he came to the line, my company before is gone and I am left alone, it was more than he could take. That particular song, by the way, was in the old 1941 church hymnal. Three stanzas of it. Three isn't enough to do justice to this verse. But there were three stanzas there. And somewhere I'm supposed to have a copy of the old setting that was in the old hymnal. It is so bad you can't believe it. It's awful. The music is plastic music, pardon me. It's, it, it, it's music that would be appropriate at a funeral for the little, little matchbox organ back there behind the screen to be playing so nobody's listening, you know. It doesn't say anything about wrestling. So as we talk tomorrow morning about music and have, which one has the more impact, the music or the words, not only is there bad music, but there's good music badly set. And that was an excellent example of it. Just really, really awful. I have heard it done to a tune that I like. It's not one that's available to us. I'm just going to leave you with that set of words and let you go home and learn from it. Okay, next. The present hymnal also includes 18 texts by Francis Jane Crosby. That was a good guess. She's right up there at the top. Fanny Crosby, by far the largest part of her output, belongs to the gospel song category, the gospel hymn, the Sabbath school song, songs for the social meeting. But what a body of work. We were impressed when we found that Watts had written 450 hymns. We are impressed when we find that Charles Wesley wrote 6,000, maybe 6,500. Latest count, most people acknowledge that she is so far, that we know of, that she has written 9,000 lyrics. She was so embarrassed to have her name out there so much that she gave pseudonyms. As many as 200 pen names so people wouldn't know. So we have a hard time knowing which ones are really Fanny Crosby. She was blind from the age of six weeks. Never saw during her conscious life. She was married for 25 years to a blind musician until his death in 1883. So if you look her up in Julian's Dictionary of Hymnology, she is Francis von Alstein. His name still. 9,000 is an incredible number of songs. Even if we allow that some of them are not particularly high-quality poetry. Julian actually says, their simplicity and earnestness are their redeeming features. Okay, he's right. But at one point in her life, she even signed a contract with a publishing house 
to provide three new songs every week for a year. Talk about sticking your neck out. Yoif. She chose to make a virtue of her handicap by recognizing it let her work with fewer distractions than other people had. Amazingly, before the age of 10, she had penned these words, Oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. So there. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Everybody knows redeemed, I think. Probably as familiar as any. Praise him, praise him. To God be the glory. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. All the way my Savior leads me. These are all wonderful Fanny Crosby tunes, lyrics. One of her strongest hymns actually appeared in the 1886 Hymns and Tunes. There's a curious history to this one. Because her publisher was not the Review and Herald, or the old press as it was known before that. But for some reason, the editor of the 1886 Hymns and Tunes, which was the first official Adventist hymnal, got a hold of this particular hymn, and it has been used in only maybe two hymnals other than Adventist hymnals ever since. And it has been in every Adventist hymnal ever since. The Lord in Zion reigneth. I'm guessing you know this too, but we're going to sing a stanza at least. It's number seven in the hymnal. I better not turn that over because i got more to say from it later. a gospel song in this case, and certainly one of the most delightful that we have. We forget sometimes about Ellen White's family. Ellen White had an older sister, as well as a twin, an older sister, Sarah, who married a man named Stephen Belden. Five children were born to that couple, the oldest of whom was Franklin Edson Belden, making him Ellen White's nephew. Musically gifted at the age of 28, 
Belden co-edited the music for the largest and most comprehensive hymn book the Adventist Church ever put out, The Hymns and Tunes. It had 1,413 musical items in it. We've stopped a little short of 700 here, about half. Hmm? Twice the number that we have now, 80 of which is texts, and 87 tunes were Belden's. That's a remarkable contribution. 22 years later, he single-handedly published the volume known as Christ in Song, which was never officially adopted as a church hymnal, but which was the book that my parents grew up with and enjoyed particularly. That book had 86 of his texts and 109 of his own tunes, almost all of them being, again, gospel songs rather than hymns as such. But it's kind of fun to get an idea of Belden's gifts. We find that he would frequently, during a Sabbath morning service, write several stanzas based on whatever the scripture for the morning was, slanted toward what the preacher was saying about it, and composed the music for the words he had just written, and then he and his wife would sing the new hymn as the final hymn for the service. I like it. And then they would give the original manuscript to the preacher as a souvenir. If we're going to include any Adventist among our ought-to-know hymn writers, and he was on my original list of five, yes, F.E. Belden is certainly the most logical and deserving choice. There are 12 items by him in the hymnal, and in every case, he wrote both the words and the music, which is, of course, not true of Watts, Wesley, Fanny Crosby. We know I will sing of Jesus' love, cover with his life. We know not the hour. And so I thought we'd do something different. I went back to the old hymns and tunes. You've got a page there that doesn't look like the other pages, right? From the lips of angels spoken. As long as it's Christmas season, might as well sing something that feels like Christmas. And this is an F.E. Belden text to a tune that I think you probably have heard before somewhere. Let's see how it goes. of angels spoken fell the song with falling dews was there ever silence broken by such joyous welcome news alleluia 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 christ is born you know where the second stanza is don't you just want to be sure we're not used to reading them this way The people in England get all confused when they see a hymnal with all the stanzas in between because they're used to this. So this is the way it works. Startled shepherds. Startled shepherds, all awaking, hear the song the angels sing. And their frightened flocks forsaking, go to seek the Savior King. Alleluia, alleluia. Thank you. 
If you look at number 297, that looks a little more familiar. Angels from the Realms of Glory, James Montgomery's set of words that goes to the same tune. I think I'm going to skip the next one, which is another F.E. Belden, a more typical gospel song, because I think we've got enough to do to keep on going. So, that's four of my first five. Lest we think serious hymn writing is a lost art, we need to consider the hymn revival, or as it's sometimes called, the hymn explosion, which took place in late 20th century England. One of its earliest representatives was Eric Routley, a hymnologist who has two hymns in our book. Probably a little better known would be Fred Kahn, who has five. Timothy Dudley Smith has five. Brian Wren has ten. And Fred Pratt Green, 15, a Methodist minister, as long as we're looking at the Methodist connection. And Pratt Green, by the way, is one of those wonderful British double names. Don't look under G to find it in the book. It's Pratt Green, that's his name, even though it's not hyphenated. He spent some 38 years as a Methodist minister, but after he retired in 1969, began writing hymns, which he had not done much of before. But it's interesting how much like Isaac Watts' concerns his were as he thought about writing for the congregation. A quotation. Coming to hymn writing after experience as a poet, I have learned to distinguish between the two activities. In other words, being a poet and being a hymn writer are not the same thing, he says. One writes poetry to please oneself. One writes hymns as a servant of Christ and his church. Only one thing matters, that the hymn shall be right for use in worship. Most of this author's texts are intended for particular occasions, and so they talk about specific social or doctrinal topics Fifteen of his texts are in the Adventist hymnal, a number of them, that number itself being quite a tribute to his ability. Most of them, I think, are probably not familiar to you. If you came this morning, first thing on, you got to sing, When in Our Music God is Glorified, which is a great text, and we sang it to a tune that most of us know better than the one that's in the book. But I'd like to ask you to sing another one, number 581, When the Church of Jesus... And if this doesn't give us cause for thought, we probably aren't thinking much. When the church of Jesus shuts its outer door, lest the roar of traffic drown the voice of Christian worship into Christ. 
base, I think, with what we've been talking about here lately. Well, there's my list. That's my first five. And then I couldn't quit. There's so many other names that are so important that match as well. We've talked about two writers so far who had serious handicaps. Watts, who was sick a great deal. Fanny Crosby with her blindness. William Cooper was by nature high-strung and sensitive, and a very unfortunate event simply sent him off the deep end. Totally. He made at least four attempts on his own life. He spent a year and a half in an asylum. Fortunately, there was someone who cared compassionately and tenderly for him, and over a period of time, he recovered a reasonable degree of stability. Approximately five years after his collapse, he joined John Newton in Christian service to the impoverished community of Olney. Olney. Remember what they made in Olney? I won't ask you, Matt. That's all right. Olney, a community of lace makers. People who did cottage work sat at home by very poor light, tatted lace for commercial sale. John Newton, by the way, is the same one, yes, who wrote Amazing Grace. And the two of them served together. Together they prepared a book known as the Olney Hymns, about a fifth of which were actually Cooper's. The rest were Newton's, and that's where Amazing Grace first appears. I have a copy of the Olney Hymns. The Adventist Hymnal has three of Cooper's and six of Newton's. I'm guessing that you may have sung, Oh, for a Closer Walk with God. That's William Cooper. But you may not know as well, number 107, God moves in a mysterious way. Cecil Humphreys was very much concerned when she overheard one of her godsons complaining that he didn't understand the catechism. 
So she decided to simplify the difficulty by writing hymns for children based on the different articles of the Apostles' Creed. Wouldn't you know, this is the session I got the fewest people here and I want the most to say this to everybody. Okay, here I go. The usual response, what, what, what should the church offer for children to sing? Does it matter? The usual response in our present society is something like the Arky song. <laughs> or maybe, you know, I just want to be a sheep, ba, ba, ba. People, don't insult good minds with that kind of schlock. <laughs> Children can sing. Children can learn. Children are still hot-wired to learn. Children's brains are hooked up so they will remember everything better than you can. And what they don't use starts getting pruned away. Give them something worth hanging on to. I have heard three-year-old and four-year-old children sing Sweet Hour of Prayer, all three stanzas, and it's no burden. It's just as accessible as anything else. And march into his eye on all four stanzas. I know kids can do it. And they will appreciate it, and they will thank you for it. Keep, keep raising the bar. My two-year-old little sister can tell you what DNA is. Yep. I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. Challenge their minds. Use their minds. They have the capacity to learn anything they want to. And all things bright and beautiful, which most of you probably have sung. I mentioned it as an example of a real carol. I didn't duplicate it because, again, it's under copyright. The setting is under copyright. But all things bright and beautiful was Cecil Humphrey's way of trying to explain the creation part of the creed for children to understand. And I remember singing that when I wasn't much more than three or four. That's a good example of a carol, as we talked about last time. She later married uh, Alexander, so her name is Cecil Alexander. She also wrote Once in Royal David's City, which some of you may be familiar with. She wrote There is a Green Hill Far Away, which has to do, of course, with the crucifixion. Both easily related to church doctrine, but also designed to be easily grasped. Musically challenging, worthwhile. I'd like to suggest we sing number 285, and this is one I grew up with because it was one of my aunt's favorites. And this, again, was her way of explaining the master's call to the fisherman beside the sea. So 
mentioned earlier the Moravians. And the Moravian brethren. He was in 1722 that the wealthy nobleman Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf met a carpenter who had come to Saxony to escape persecution. Zinzendorf was 22 years old at the time. He was educated to be a lawyer. But he was deeply convicted of the need for a personal religion, what he called a Christianity of the heart. Having both the resources and the compassion, he began to give refuge to these oppressed believers on his own estate. Within 10 years, there were 600 Moravian brethren living on his land in what was known as the Lord's Shelter, Herrenhut, the Lord's House. Before long, Zinzendorf himself studied for and received a license to preach. He became a bishop of the Moravians in 1737. No longer in favor with the prevailing Lutheran society, he began to travel as a missionary, took families with him, and came to establish Moravian communities in Germany, Holland, England, and America. He arrived at Bethlehem, Pennsylvania on a Christmas day, and Bethlehem has been a big Moravian community ever since. I mentioned this morning what a strong musical tradition they have. Eventually, no longer banned by the Lutheran Church, he went back home where he died with his wealth totally exhausted, all gone a poor man in 1760. Zinzendorf wrote something like 2,000 hymns spread across his entire adult life. Unfortunately, the hymns don't translate easily into English. Their meters don't work well. One of the most successful translators is Catherine Winkworth. Eight of her translations are in the hymnal, not always of Zinzendorf's work. But it gives us access to some of the chorales that we looked at earlier. John Wesley did translate some of Zinzendorf's work as well, and that's what we sing next, number 177, Jesus, Your Blood and Righteousness, with two names that are important to us. blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, mid flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head, bold shall I stand in short enough on time. I think we better pass that by. And I want to go to 
what looks like it's going to be our last one. Martin Rinkert. Rather than cobble together an account of his experience, I'm going to read to you what John Julian says in the Dictionary of Hymnology. He is now quoting also from an earlier source. The greater part of Rinkert's professional life was passed amid the horrors of the Thirty Years' War. Eilenburg, being a walled town, became a refuge for fugitives from all around, and being so overcrowded, not unnaturally suffered from pestilence and famine. During the great pestilence of 1637, the superintendent went away for change of air and could not be persuaded to return. On August 7, Rinkert had to officiate at the funerals of two of the town clergy and two who had had to leave their livings in the country, livings being a, a, theological, a, a pastoral term. Rinkert thus for some time was the only clergyman in the place and often read the funeral service over some 40 to 50 persons a day. In all, about 4,480. At last, the refugees had to be buried in trenches without service. During the whole epidemic, some 8,000 persons died, including Rinkert's first wife, who died May 8, 1637. I hope you catch the next sentence. The next year, he had an epidemic of marriages to encounter and himself fell a victim on June 24. Immediately thereafter came a most severe famine during which Rinkert's resources were strained to the uttermost to help his people. Twice also, he saved Eilenberg from the Swedes, once at the beginning of 1637, again in 1639, going outside the city with his own white flag to argue with the commander of the opposing forces that he release some of the terms, that he relieve the terms of surrender. Unfortunately, the services he rendered to the place seemed to have made those in authority the more ungrateful. In his latter years, he was much harassed by them in financial and other matters. And by the time the long-looked-for peace came in 1648, he was a worn-out and prematurely old man. Now, my good people, we have only one hymn in the Adventist hymnal by this man. It seems to have been written around 1636, when the war had dragged on for some 18 years already. If the horrors of the next 12 years were not foreseeable, the sufferings that had already been caused to this point were terrible enough. So what kind of a hymn do you think a man in this kind of position is going to write? I beg of you, pay attention to what the man is saying and recall the tragic and oppressive circumstances around him. I mean no disrespect to any contemporary believer or artist when I say what I am about to say, but I have to tell you that if I have before me spiritual fare by such a man as Martin Rinkert, and as an alternative, a popular style song by a 21st century Nashville commercial artist who smiles contentedly all the way to the bank with the royalties from his or her platinum single, I can tell you where I'm going to go for meat in due season. I invite you to do the same. Hymns are not boring. Hymns are not yucky. Hymns are very much for real. Let's stand up and sing.
Father in heaven, our lives have not been through that yet. We would like to think we will not go through that, but we are greatly encouraged to know that one who has been there can still see the hand of God, the love of God, the gifts of God, the support of God. And we pray that when and if it is our lot to be in the same kind of situation, our faith will be like that man's faith. Thank you for letting us share it with him. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.com. Org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.